Hello and welcome to the October edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave and I'll be speaking to Michael Etherton, the chief executive of UK Jewish Film, about the 2019 festival. And I'm Tony Honigberg. I will be talking to Esther Hoffman, who is the director of Step by Step in Stanford Hill, and we will be talking about the work they do offering families in the community respite for those who have children with different needs. This is Kate Fulton, and I'm at the Roundhouse in Camden Town, where we're celebrating the incredible volunteering work of the Jewish Lads and Girl Brigade. And I'm Clive Roslin, and I shall be talking to Gary Signor, the creator and director of the Jewish Inquirer, a new television comedy series. And our rabbinic thought for the month will come from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg of New North London Mazorty Synagogue. But before that, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past month, I'm Vivian Krieger. At the Labour Party conference in Brighton, the Shadow Foreign Secretary told a Friends of Palestine fringe meeting that her party would immediately review all arms sales to Israel if they won the next election. Emily Thornbury made the pledge and added that Labour would also host an international emergency conference on Palestinian human rights, but added that her concern was for both Palestinian and Israeli children. Also at the conference, a row broke out between left-wing activists and Jewish Labour members after anti-Semitic material was distributed near the Brighton Centre. Sussex police confirmed that officers had removed a banner which portrayed a fighter plane representing the Israel lobby attacking Jeremy Corbyn with defamation. The group Sussex Friends of Israel said it had clearly been put up to cause offence. Luciana Berger, the MP who left Labour over anti-Semitic bullying, is to stand as the Lib Dem candidate for Finchley and Golders Green at the next general election. Recent polls show her new party is ahead in the constituency. The sitting MP, Mike Freer, had a slim 1,657 majority at the last election. However, supporters of Mr Freer claim he would trounce Miss Berger if she stood. News from Israel and the President, Reuven Rivlin, has asked Benjamin Netanyahu to form a new government. The decision came after President Rivlin failed to broker a unity government between Mr Netanyahu and his main rival, Benny Gantz. The President is constitutionally responsible for nominating a Prime Minister after national elections. Two cousins who escaped from Romania separately when Germany invaded in 1940 have been reunited 75 years later. Maurice Sarna, who's 87, and Simon Merowitz, who's 85, each believed the other had been killed by the Nazis. Their descendants managed to trace them on Facebook, with Maurice living in Ranana in Tel Aviv and Simon ending up in America. And finally, kosher venison has become available in the UK for the first time in more than 100 years. The Kosher Rare Meat Company has started importing the game from Europe, where it's slaughtered under the supervision of the Federation of Synagogues. A spokeswoman for the company said that it was important to make clear that it's a seasonal product and that more will hopefully be available around October or November. Viv, thank you very much indeed. Well, just before we start with our guests here on this month's edition of The Jewish Views, it's normally around this time that the team like to have a little chat amongst ourselves. And I was thinking that based on just how much of this month's episode surrounds the silver screen and production and what have you. I just thought it was really curious the way that Jews seem to have the most unbelievable and almost, shall we say, off-the-scale connection with the entertainment industry, whether that be the silver screen, whether that be on television. I just find it curious how it's a an industry that we've somehow managed to root ourselves in and I actually include ourselves in this you know we are technically in the entertainment industry we certainly are why are there so many Jews in this industry per capita probably more than any other I I really don't know I don't have the answer to it I remember I think we spoke about this on a previous occasion with people like Irving Berlin and the Gershwin. I don't remember speaking to Irving Berlin, but okay. We, I think on last month's episode when we had someone in doing, doing songs from the American Songbook, why do Jewish people... Is it something that's in the makeup from attending synagogue, hearing Chazanot? Is it something in the makeup from Eastern European with that Kletzmer type of music? I no, don't, I don't know. No, it's none of those things. I, I, I'm going to name drop now. I once, many years ago, met 
I've never got over it. I met the famous American Jewish composer, Leonard Bernstein. And I actually brought, I don't know how I had the courage to do it, I brought up the subject of how many Jews there were in music. And he said, well, of course, because the Jewish are the most musical people in the world. And also, there were very few things they were able to do when they were much younger in, in centuries past, and so they used entertainment. So and you see, that explains the music side, but I wonder how it explains the screen, and in particular film and television. Now, I've got a theory about this, and I don't know whether or not this is totally wrong. I'm sure you two are going to correct me if I am. But you know how obviously it's inherent within us to repair the world, to con alarm. Mm. Well, how else is it possible to get that message out there on a grander scale than to actually have Jews in the limelight? And I wonder whether or not that it's part of people's desire to change the world to actually get out there and get their message out there. You may be right, because if you look at the film industry in Hollywood, they were all Jews, weren't they? Mm. The Golden Mayor... Columbia, all of them, all started All, by all the studios were started by Jews, wasn't it? Yes. And, and even if you come back to Great Britain, I mean, you had people like Alexander Corder oh, and his course. brothers. When you get to actors, you had Leslie Howard, who, who everybody doesn't believe was Jewish, but he was actually <laughs> born... He was Hungarian. He was a Hungarian Jew. His first two names were Leslie Howard, and he used his first two names, never used his surname. Peter Sellers whose mother was Jewish. Yes. So he was Jewish and identified himself as a Jew, although not religiously. So, Which is what I worry shatters my idea is because I know a lot of those who are in the entertainment industry are not necessarily religious. So maybe it isn't about the whole repair of the world. Let's even take a look today. We've got Sasha Baron Cohen. We've got Matt Lucas. Yeah, in the comedy industry. In the comedy industry. and, And American comedians were often Jewish American comedians taking the mickey out of yourself and I think I think with that we do laugh at our own I a- think abilities or inabilities and that's a very important point about the comedians but what accounts for the musicians the serious actors like Leslie Howard that you mentioned and all the other people all the other creative people who are Jewish what excuse or right have they got I think we'd have to get a Jewish psychologist or even a Jewish psychiatrist to come and have a look and there's plenty of those around as well and, and, and again you could look at it and say well psychology, psychiatry is also again an entertainment so you see I suppose maybe on the medical front then that does explain the whole repair the world business you know that would be more realistic to that but I still can't quite work out why it is in particular that Jews have such an affiliation to the entertainment and I suppose the only thing I can put it put it down to other than potentially getting one's message out there it's maybe just by and large we actually are quite a jolly people and therefore we actually like to entertain folk and we want to cheer the world up as it is, were. is it not possible that the sort of anti-semitic feeling about it all that they found the only thing that they could do which might entertain and and change people's minds was entertainment that's possible that is possible i i, I was just thinking back to being in front of an audience if you if you take a short service oh yes i got, remember that <laughs> <laughs> we were once um, a short service you've got the cousin who is an entertainer on a Shabbos or a Yom Tov in, the, in Shul, right? Yeah, you've got the rabbi doing his speech, his sermon. He has become an entertainer in front of the congregation, i.e. the audience. Well, do you know what, gentlemen? There is an awful lot of entertainment that lies ahead in the next part of this programme. So I suggest that we waste no more time and find out exactly what's in store because you are listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Can you believe it? We're nearly at that time again to talk about all things silver screen. Yes, the UK Jewish Film Festival 2019 is nearly upon us. Now, the film festival is bigger and better than ever this year and amongst its many venues up and down the country, no less. One of them will be right here at JW3. Of course, there's only one person who knows the cinematic event in and out, and I'm utterly delighted to say he joins me on the line now. Michael Etherton is the chief executive of UK Jewish Film. Hello there, Michael. Hello, Phil. Hello. Right, OK. Well, I think first and foremost, I believe that we need to get down to the nitty-gritty of it. And just in case... 
anyone has been living in some sort of strange bubble, perhaps just remind them what UK Jewish Film Festival is actually all about. I'm guessing the name is on the tin, though. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're a festival of films that tell Jewish stories and reflect Jewish life. Films from around the world and from Britain. And we're the only festival that, that really does this. Films that you wouldn't otherwise see at the cinema or on your streaming service. This year, it's 96 film titles from 25 countries. So there's a huge amount. Well, I was going to say, let's make no mistake about this. There is absolutely no shortage of material available, is there? Because I happen to know from knowing you for a few years now that you spend the best part of the whole year trying to perfect the film festival each year and actually gathering all the content. Is that right? Yeah, our team our team works really hard to to root out the best in Jewish films from around the world. And actually this year we've watched probably 6 to 700 films uh, wow. you know which we have reviewed. So it's incredible what's out there. And how so many from- just to put this into perspective, sorry to interrupt. How many have you personally I'm I'm not I'm not going to say had to sit through because that makes it sound like you're forced into it. But how many have you as a result of it watched? Well, me personally, um, I, it's definitely in the hundreds. But also we, our head of programming, Nir Cohen, it's his task and joy and, and delight to watch all of the films. So he, is, he will have seen several hundred films over the course of the last six to eight months. And do you give them the time of day? Let's be honest, some films can start off a little bit, how can I put it, disappointing, should we say. Do you still give them the time of day and watch the whole thing just to make 100% sure? Or do you say, no, nah, I can't be doing this? Yeah, no, we, we, we do watch the films in entirety. We, we review films internally. And, you know, there is a duty to the filmmakers who, you know, they're, they're, many of them will have worked for, many, for, for years on a, on a film project. It takes so long to get a film to come into fruition. So they deserve their film to be watched and reviewed by us. Obviously, we can't accept all the films that's not necessarily a reflection on the quality but you know we have to bring together a balanced program you know so it may well be there's some amazing films that unfortunately we can't bring into the program in the end but we do watch everything that that, that is submitted to the festival well let's unpick that a bit further shall we because how does that process actually work does someone come to you and say look i've got this great film and of course they're going to say that because they've made it i've got this great film i'd love you to look at it what do you think? Is it a case of, yes, you'll just say yes to anything or you actually have to answer certain questions first? How does that process work? It partly works like that, Phil. It's, we, we get films submitted to us and, you know, as long as it's clear that there's likely to be something that feels relevant in terms of Jewish content, then we will, we will take a look, of it, a look at it. But there's also films that we're chasing year round and they may be in major film festivals in Cannes, at the Berlinale, in Venice, in Toronto. And so we, we, we really look very carefully at their programs and negotiate hard to get the, the, the biggest and the best films from those festivals. And just um, through research, through our many contacts that we have around the world who, who we, you know, we speak to about what's, what's coming up. So it's, it's, it's a sort of mixture of, of, you know, doing all that research and, and also, you know, looking at what people are sending in to us. And sometimes you just get these gems, which you completely unexpected that you know we almost come across quite randomly as well how does it actually work in terms of what constitutes as a film that will make it into the festival because surely the actual deciding if something is good or not is subjective so just because with the greatest amount of respect you might think that a film is great there may be some who think oh this is terrible so how, how does that work how can you guarantee that you're going to get something for everybody well, I mean, experience helps. You know, we, we're, we are, we're a team who've, who've worked on the festival for a number of years and we have a very loyal and vociferous audience. They, <laughs> they, they tell us what they think and, and that actually is really helpful, both anecdotally and, you know, through the formal surveys that we do. So we know, we have a sense of, of, of how films are received by audiences and we have a sense of what is not received well. as So it's a bit of a balancing game. You know, in terms of quality, yes, you know, there is, of course, there's, there's, of course, there's subjectivity in, in, in art and, and entertainment. Absolutely. We try and, you know, approach with as much objectivity as we can. We have our small staff team here working hard on that. But we also have a voluntary programming group and they 
get to see many of the films and comment on those films as well. So we, it's not just it's not just that I'm sitting there and saying this is great or yeah. that's not good. <laughs> there is a, a nice little variety of opinions going on. Yeah, right. We, I we think get, we get need to talk that. about Festival 2019, and in particular, I said it right at the beginning of this interview: bigger and better than ever. How so? Absolutely. This is our. This is the biggest film festival we've ever ever run. It's. As I said, 96 films. I think that that makes it the largest Jewish film festival program in the world, which is pretty incredible sort of festival to be running. We are at 13 cinemas across London, including, of course, the wonderful JW3, which is one of our main partners. And this year, what's really special is that we have an extended UK tour for the first time. We are going to 21 cities across England, Scotland and Wales. So we'll be there in cinemas from Inverness to Brighton and Bangor to Norwich. And we are, the, the point is we're bringing this Jewish content to audiences of all backgrounds, to cities and where there are no Jewish communities. And it's really important that we can share Jewish life through film to audiences who may well have little contact with Jewish culture in the rest of the year. But realistically, do you expect any demand from those areas that you've mentioned that don't necessarily have a Jewish community? Could it be, I suppose, assumed that the Jewish Film Festival is kind of just for Jewish people? Do you know what? There's such a, there's a lot of curiosity about Jewish life and culture. We're not, you know, I think that we don't need to be uh, fearful of that. It's really about programming carefully finding films that will have a, an appeal beyond the Jewish community. So we, we, we think very carefully about what we bring to some of these towns and cities. And it's also, you know, it's about reaching out in the right way. And uh, But so far, we've had a really positive response from many of the new cinemas in new cities that we're working with. They're, they're really excited to get these films. They just don't, they don't get films about Jewish life normally. And it's really important at the moment, you know, in a society which is feeling quite divisive, polarised, we need to make sure that Jewish culture is part of part of the mainstream of, of, of British cinema culture. Now, actually, when I say that there is something for everybody, I'm not being paid to say this. I actually know this for a fact because I came along to one of the film festivals either last year or the year before when I think your premiere, one of your main films that you were screening in town somewhere, was actually a... I think it had subtitles, so it's not necessarily that you've got films that are in English per se. They may be in different languages, especially in Hebrew as well. And it was fascinating, actually. It was filmed in a very unusual way, showing the life of an office worker who's being harassed by her boss. And I wonder if you know which one I'm referring to, because I can't remember the name of it to save my life. Yeah, Working Woman. Thank you, Working Woman. Of course it is. (laughs) But even so, I found that absolutely fascinating. And I wasn't completely convinced with with a film that has subtitles, but yet I was so riveted by it. And yet it just goes to show that you don't have to be so narrow-minded as to think, well, if it's not in English, I'm not interested, because there really is something about foreign language films that can be just as interesting. Definitely. I mean, I think that, you know, after a few minutes, you just forget the subtitles are there. It's just really worth making that extra, you know, a little bit of extra effort to go and see a a film in a a foreign language. I I also think that we're getting a bit more used to it because it's not just film festivals like the UK Jewish Film Festival that have subtitles films. You know, you see on, you know, for on demand or on Netflix, there's just more and more you know, content out there which is in foreign languages with subtitles. So I think that we are becoming less less sensitive to, 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 to foreign language films. Right, penultimately, because I'm going to put you on the spot here, I do every year when I speak to you about this, Chief Executive's pick. <laughs> what film should we be looking out for? Well, that's a really unfair question. Because, I know, you know, but I, I am I, unfair, I as you well know. films in our programme. I mean, I'm, you know, we, we've, it's been so hard to pick. Stop being diplomatic. Like, Come on, there must be one that stands out. I have to press you for this. There's got to be one that you really think stood out. Well, I might give you two or three if that's okay. Go for it. <laughs> um, well, I would Actually, the first one I would, I would pick out is actually not a film at all. It's a TV series. And you know how well Israeli TV series have been doing. And this one is from the writers and directors of Shtissel. It's called Autonomies, and it's going to be at JW3 on the 16th of November. And it's set in the future. It imagines an Israel which is split into two entities. One is is a, the secular, a secular 
Zionist, as they put it, state with its capital in Tel Aviv, and the other is a is a, a, a religious orthodox autonomy with its capital in Jerusalem. So it imagines an Israel divided into secular and religious, which is an, a really interesting premise, and it's such a powerful film. And we'll be having a little discussion afterwards about how far the film may be starting to reflect some realities in, in contemporary Israel, but it's, it, and it's certainly one that I would highly recommend. Second one, if, if you're like me and you, you like a bit of Israeli street food, then I would say come and see The King of Boric on the 10th of November. Um, it's about the rise and fall of Sami Barekas and Sons. They, they had this huge chain of Barekas cafes, bars across Israel, which everyone knew about and everyone was very familiar with. And um, their family story is so fascinating. It sort of epitomizes, you know, the archetypal Israeli story in, in a way. Really interesting sort of social history of, of Israel. And afterwards, we'll be serving, you know, Barekas. Which I'm there. I'm good. telling you, I'm, I'll be there. Make no mistake about that. I was waiting for that to happen. I was gonna, I was hoping you were going to say that. Excellent. Now, do you know what? We're flat out of time for your third. So people are just going to have to come to the festival and judge for themselves. Just finally, just get some details to people if they want to find out more. Where do they go? Go to ukjewishfilm.org and all the information is there and you can book on our through our website. Or you can also call our booking line on 020-3176-0048. Fantastic. Michael Etherton, Chief Executive of UK Jewish Film, thank you so much for telling us about what the 2019 festival has in store for us. Thanks, Phil. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Well, we've heard all about this year's Jewish Film Festival, and as we now know, it's so much more than just films. Let's find out a little more about one of the shows which will have its premiere at the festival here at JW3 on November the 20th. The Jewish Inquirer is the brainchild and creation of our next guest. It features a hapless journalist who happens to work for some reason, a Jewish newspaper. Gary Senor is the man behind the sitcom and we can hear all about it now. And Gary is sitting opposite me and tell me all about it. So it was it's something I've been trying to make for a number of years. And it was originally called the Barnet Inquirer. And I was going to do a sort of local, it's the same kind of principle. And then about a year and a half ago, I spoke to some friends, I was talking to them who were in the industry. And they said, oh, why don't you just call it, you know, do it a bit more Jewish. And I just said, oh, I can call it the Jewish Inquirer. And that made them laugh and it made me laugh and that enabled me to go in and rewrite the scripts so I'd actually had the six scripts for this first series that enabled me to rewrite them and give them a, a more personal angle I mean it was already a personal series but it allowed me to go in and make it a bit more Jewish which given the times that we're going through at the moment and I don't want to get too political but gave me an added reason to want to make it with a specifically Jewish angle. So I know it's being shown here, premiered here at JW3, but is it going to be shown on television or on the screen? Yeah, so, so the first two episodes are being shown here at JW3. The first one is called The Key Cutter and the Vegan, and the second one is called The Juicer. And they're both being shown here at JW3. The other four episodes and those two will all be available on a streaming website, which I can't name because I don't know yet whether or not it will be the one that begins with N or the one that begins with A. <laughs> so it'll be one or other of those two. I'm, I'm just waiting to hear from... Uh, anyway, yeah, there's an American company that's meant to be doing that and I'm caught up in nonsense. Now, are the cast Jewish? Tim Downey is now so here's the thing Tim Downey people don't think is Jewish but he is Jewish if Tim's listening I hope he doesn't take offense at that but he actually is Jewish in fact his mum saw the article in the Jewish Chronicle and rang him up and said you know she was excited and looked for the first time in anything that he'd done so Tim Tim is is Jewish and he plays the lead Josh Howey who plays Simon who's Paul's best friend is Jewish Lucy Montgomery plays his sister she isn't Jewish and Jeff McGiven who plays his dad is not Jewish but the whole Jew face thing, I don't think, I don't think it applies to this. I mean, the, 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 the essence of what they're doing is playing interesting characters. And as the writer and director, I knew what I wanted from people. There's no over-the-topness in terms of Jewishness. And I know exactly, 
in fact, the milieu, this is maybe the most interesting about this, the milieu for this was that we shot in my house. So we didn't, so it was very easy because everything that was in my house applied over to Lucy Montgomery's character, Nomi. And all I had to do was remove photos of my daughter because so she was getting a little bit upset, but I was removing photos of my daughter everywhere I could. And then a friend of mine who's a, a, a psychiatrist, uh, Paul Green, lives in his house. So we, we shot in places where the dressing, if you like, was already there. We did remove a poster of The Godfather from my friend's house because we were worried that we'd get sued by Paramount for just having it in the background. So the, the whole Jewish milieu was set and in fact we shot the whole thing in Finchley apart from two scenes which we shot in Hampstead in my local barber the guy who I go to to get my hair cut is the barber the florist is the florist that we go to the so it's almost a documentary well I hope not (laughs) I hope it's a damn sight funnier than a documentary well it's a funny documentary it's it's got that element of realism that and people made the comparison to Curb to curb your enthusiasm although it doesn't have any of that hollywood glitz and the celebrity thing it's much more grounded yeah in a kind of north london reality dealing with the pressures issues and things that i confront i guess well you obviously think and hope and pray that it will have an international audience in the end Uh, praying i'm not so sure about but anyway well (laughs) (laughs) is it is is it the sort of thing that people will people who are not Jewish will find as funny as, as Jews will. I, uh, so we've tested it. Obviously, we've tested it. And actually, I think it goes the other way around, to be honest. I think the non-Jewish, the non-Jewish audience for this is probably bigger. And it's, it reminds me of when I did Leon the Pig Farmer, that we got, you know, a very strong non-Jewish audience for it. And the, the Jewish audience would come along and always be a little bit picky. You know, like, why is he wearing that jacket? Or why has he got, a, you know, a beard? Or why? And, and so you get that sort of feedback generally from a, from a Jewish audience. A non-Jewish audience, I think, just thinks this is very funny. And, and I think also, again, given the times that we're living in, more so because they're aware of anti-Semitism. They know that anti-Semitism is out there. The fact that this character seems to confront a version of anti-Semitism quite regularly either because it exists or because he accuses people of it one way or the other, I think makes it, you know, resonate. But more than anything else, it's funny. I mean, there's just, there's, you know, uh, there are incidents that happen in it that I I think are are farcical and very funny. Well, let's have a, a little listen to a taster of it now. I'm a journalist for the Jewish Inquirer. I love Jewish people. My party loves Jewish people. Just because we are a Jewish newspaper doesn't mean we can't tackle national issues. Anyone that's got three good A-levels could drive a bit quicker. Anyone above, say, three Bs. You're disqualified. Hmm? It is run by anti-Semites. What are you doing later? I've got a date and I can't get a sitter. Busy. Freelance journalist busy or proper job busy? I'm on a blind date. Yeah, vegans are very in vogue at the moment, aren't they? I mean, everyone's at it. Well, it's good for you and the planet. Oh, right. Phone's recording. Let's go. Do you have much experience with cloud reading? Well, I say I do. But do you? But do you? So there we are. Yes, it is very, very, very funny, if I may say. Thanks. And I think it's got a lot to it. What, what do you hope will happen to it, though? So I've got, I've got two... Uh, as I mentioned, there's an American company that's doing things yes. and sending me emails occasionally. And, and I think there will be... I hope that in my, in my dreams there are two things that will happen. One is that it will in itself take off as a series here and that I'll be able to do this series and then do another series of the Jewish Inquirer because it's not like I'm short of ideas. To be honest, this interview is probably the basis of an episode of the Jewish Inquirer <laughs> series too. So it's not like you, you, all you do is you just need to take these characters out into the world and, and you find things that are funny because of the nature of who these characters are because he's, the central character is curmudgeonly and confused and has a sort of very strong sense of what is right and wrong, perhaps overly so. So I hope to make the, uh, this series does well in the UK and beyond in you know in the states and, and beyond that as well there is also a suggestion that it might be remade in america and so and that would be an interesting thing for me as well although as i say my main thing would be to get this series out i think this sh- this series would play quite well in the states as well and the reaction from the people who have seen it over there has been very strong it would probably have a, an even bigger reaction surely in the states because they they're used to a american television or cinema 
films, stories, series. Yeah, they, they have a, a, a more obvious understanding of the neurosis involved in Jewish humor through Seinfeld, through Curb, through, you know, through a whole series of things that actually aren't necessarily Jewish, but the writing, the writing is quite often Jewish in theme. So you, you didn't think at first of sending it to America and let, make its name in America than here in Britain? No, Clive, why didn't you tell me that like, about a year and a half ago, two years ago? Oh, I would have done if I'd, if I'd had the chance. I think when it was called the Barnet Inquirer, that wouldn't have worked very well in, in America. But the, the Jewish Inquirer, they seem to have taken very well to it. They seem to think it's very funny. They think the trailer's very funny. And so, yeah, no, I hope that the series works like, you know, I hope that we'll have a picture of Tim Downey in about a year's time smoking a cigarette with a, surrounded by a few Emmys, wearing a very low-cut dress like Phoebe Waller-Bridge. <laughs> That's my hope. Gary Senor, thank you very much indeed, and I wish you every success. Thank you, Clive. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. It's around this time of year that many Jews feel the need to reflect on their lives, looking at the good and the bad and thinking about what we can do to make improvements. Arguably, one of the faults we're all guilty of is not necessarily being thankful for what we have. And our next guest will certainly help us to realise that. Esther Hoffman is the director of a marvellous centre called Step by Step. They offer respite to families who have children with different needs. They're based in Stanford Hill, and I'm delighted to say that we can speak to Esther now to find out more about their essential services. Esther, thank you for coming on The Jewish Views. The first question I must ask is, we talk about respite to the, for the families, but what about the children? What do you do for them? So the children come to our lovely hub, which is a beautiful building on the high road in Stamford Hill. There are two large activity rooms and a soft play. And they come here every day, actually. That's Sunday through till Shabbos. And they attend their programs here and they enjoy the sessions and activities that we run. We often have entertainers here and we have programs and different specialists coming in to work with the children. And in addition to that, going beyond just being at our centre, we actually take children out most days after school. It's Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays to different sports sessions such as hydro swimming, ice skating, cycling, we do regular swimming and dance classes, trampolining. And the kids actually go out to let off steam and enjoy a really good, healthy exercise session, which really helps them, you know, with their physical strength and stamina and it helps them develop. And that's really an amazing part of the program we do. Lovely. And you, you say that your step-by-step is parent-led. How do the parents get involved with that? So parents actually inform us all the time of what, how they would like services to look, what they would prefer, which type of sessions they would like. So we would send out questionnaires and say, look, we can offer you at the moment these four after-school sessions. What would you prefer? Would you like to have the sessions around this time or that time? Should we do Sundays from 11 till 5 or should we do 10 till 4? So they can tell us that. And then they can also share with us what they feel about the care of their child if it's working or not, and how they would like it to be otherwise. And the parents are very, very invested in their children, and they really give their lives away for these special children that they have. And they care deeply, and they understand them very well. And they actually have a, you know, they really respond because they just want the best for their children. And do the parents actually get involved in helping with the children as well? No, generally not. The parents just need a break, so they don't come along and be part of the session. Okay, the so children you, are sent here and we have carers here. So you have specialists for that. You've been going for, I've, I've just worked it out, you've been going for 23 years. How did you start this up and why did you start this up? So it wasn't me who started it, but I can tell you the history. Mm, There's someone called Toby Valser. She's a, a current trustee and she was the founding trustee as well. She had two autistic sons who were born in close succession, one after the next. For her, it was the most overwhelming experience. She, you know, she had a very difficult time with it. And she just needed to entertain and give the best for her children. So she started step by step with a little swimming group that left early in the morning when they could rent out a pool around six o'clock in the morning, once a week. And she was taking her two sons and then another two or three children who joined. It was very homemade service. It happened in her kitchen. She arranged a taxi service, booked the pool. Uh, they arranged a few volunteers to help the kids get dressed and undressed. And they took the kids to the water. And the children really benefited and really enjoyed the, being in the water and learning how to swim. 
And that's how Step by Step started. And then just more and more parents wanted to join these swimming groups. So this set up more swimming groups. And then it's spread on to more sessions, Sundays and after schools. And it's just grown ever since. Today, these two sons are like 23, I think, and 26. And they no longer, you know, that's it. They don't they don't attend our services anymore because we go up to age 18. But she, Mrs. Valtz is still a trustee of Step by Step. Can you give us an example of the kind of needs you care for? It's extremely broad ranging. It goes from autism, Down syndrome, developmental delay, and then very specific, you know, um, hearing loss, ADHD. It's a huge variety of different disabilities that we can cater for. Generally, we won't turn a child away and we will just make it work for that particular, those particular needs of that child. You said just now that the children stay until they're aged 18. Do you have any link with any other organization that will take them on from the age of 18 yes so we work with two i mean we you know we trans help children transition from step by step to another organization for girls for young women called MISCA, and for boys there are less services available we are aware of that but there is some from tikva some of them go to kishiran and they go to other services and they just move on and we do partake in helping parents make that transition from our services onto other services because it's very, very tricky for parents at that stage when there's been a change to the child's services. Now, you're from a more orthodox branch of, re of the religion. How do you incorporate everyday practices into the centre? Right, so, to, so, to, so just let's be clear first, the state best offers to anyone who's, I mean, it's not only Jewish, but generally it's the whole Jewish community of Stanvertel. Mm. Just We are based in an orthodox area. So we have all different... You know, children from many different backgrounds and wide variety of, should we say, Jewish practice, really from across the board. It's just whoever lives in the area and even people who live further out who choose to come to use our services if they don't have anything local. So our, generally speaking, it's a respite. So the, the club is just fun. Just, you know, because we are Jewish, you know, mostly for Jewish children, we will offer kosher food only. Of course. Yes. And as well. When it comes to Chagim, Shabbat, so then we offer services on site and there's like a nice party and we do, you know, we, we take into account that it's, a, you know, it's a celebration. And now let's say upcoming is Rosh Hashanah and the children will be coming on site during the day so the parents can get a bit of respite and we will have someone coming down to blow the shofar. So there is like, you know, a bit of Jewish themes, but generally it's just a basic respite service. So, so the respite for the parents is for really just for when the children are at your centre, not for children to go away for a period of time for a week or something on a holiday and give the parents a week's respite. Right. We do do Shabbatons, so okay. that's like twice a year. We mm -hmm. do a Shabbaton for the families, for the children, so that's like an extended weekend. And we assist with the camps. We do a winter camp and a summer camp one week winter camp and a two week summer camp but we manage the camp it's actually financed and arranged by kids care which is a not a sister charity but is a separate charity and we just manage and oversee the whole program because obviously we work with the children and those camps that run twice a year are actually open to children from across the uk we have children coming from manchester and from gateshead and from different places in london to those join those camps and how do you go about raising your funds we are we have an active team of three fundraisers and we look to raise funds from all the big grant makers such as reaching communities big lottery funding bbc children in need those are all our funders and besides that we have many individual people who you know our donors who continue to give us money year on year and many smaller charities and trusts so we do rely quite heavily on that the council has a certain amount you know that they will allocate mm. to us for the services we run for those particular children and then there are the parent fees do make up part of our income there's a certain amount of fees that we charge depending on the family circumstances and parents do sometimes pay towards the cost of sessions that their children are attending got the website name here it's stepbystepkids.org.uk that's, right. That's the one. Okay, so people can go onto there and find out more about you. Esther Hoffman, thank you very, very much for coming on the programme. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, in September, an event was held by the JLGB, or the Jewish Lads and Girls Brigade, in recognition of the younger members of the community's volunteering contributions. Among the guests of honour was the Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis, and we'll hear from him very shortly. But we sent 
the Jewish Views' Kate Fulton along to get a flavour of the evening. I'm at the Roundhouse in Camden Town where we're celebrating the incredible volunteering work of the Jewish Lads and Girl Brigade who have done unbelievable amounts of volunteering and they're being given awards to recognise that thanks to the generous support of the Genesis Philanthropy Group. What's your name and what do you do here? Hi, um, my name is Freya and I'm a communications officer and also work with the I Will, Am- I Will Ambassadors over at the I Will campaign. And how does that uh, sort of fit in, if you like, with the JLGB? So JLGB uh, enables so many young people to do amazing work in their communities and that's what the I Will campaign is all about. It's about bringing together a huge number of organisations, public sector, charities, faith groups, schools, to basically make... UK society a place where all young people have the opportunity to make a positive impact in their communities. We see JLG do this all across the country and we work quite closely with them. Separately we have something called the I Will Fund which is works through the Department for Culture, Media and Sport and the National Lottery Fund and they actually partner as a co-funder with JLGB into the Evolve programme to get this kind of moving and to be part of this, these kind of celebrations where we get to recognise the work young people are doing. Do you think volunteering for young people has changed over the years? Have you noticed more or less or anything different? So I think we found at the I Will campaign that actually the numbers have stayed similar over the last seven years, which is how long that we've been around. But I think definitely there's a strong, there's a strong sense from other kind of research that we've been seeing that young people are actually volunteering more than any other group in society, and that seems to be increasing. Particularly 18 to 24-year-olds are volunteering a lot, and they're getting more out of it. I think one thing that we saw last year from the NCVO did a research was that young people find... 18 24 year olds are most likely to say that their volunteering stops them from feeling lonely and isolated way more than any other age group and obviously that's quite so important to faith groups and to community groups is that young people aren't growing up feeling like they live alone in society so i think that's one of the reasons that we're really passionate about volunteering at at the i will campaign i suppose with the age of social media and people interacting online this is a very nice way for people to interact face to face yeah, and I think that's so important. And all young people say to us, you know, that they love the fact that online gives them an opportunity to meet new people, an opportunity to be activists online, which is a really great opportunity for them. But actually, the kind of things you learn through working with people and meeting different groups you never would have met comes across so much more kind of face-to-face. You can build the communication skills people need for the rest of their lives and build a sense of community trust. And also, it's a really good opportunity for kind of like interfaith mixing and different young people from very different backgrounds get to meet through volunteering opportunities as well. Great work. Thank you. I have the privilege of talking now to Neil Martin, OBE, who is the ground organiser. And what, tell me, what do you do at, at uh, JLGB? I, I've had the honour of being the JLGB CEO for 14 years now. Wow. What does JLGB stand for? Not so much the words, the Jewish Lads and Girls Brigade. What does it stand for? So I think it actually stands for exactly what it stood for when it was the JLB nearly 125 years ago, which is giving young people the best chance to succeed in life and to then give back to society. So to help make the Jewish young people of Britain proud of their faith and proud of the country they live in and to be the best ambassadors, especially in the world we live in now, to be an example of the best possible ambassadors that young people can possibly be. And tell me a bit about tonight. How did it come about and what was the reason for it? So tonight we celebrate the fifth anniversary of Evolve, which is JLGB's Youth Volunteering Initiative. And Evolve includes all the different national awards that JLGB run. So the Yoni Jesner Award, Duke of Edinburgh's Award, National Citizen Service, V Inspired, etc. And we, and we have a different ceremony each year. And this year, thanks to Genesis Philanthropy Group, we're able to bring everyone together in the biggest celebration of youth volunteering in the community ever to take place, 1,200 people here at the Roundhouse, to make people realise the impact over 150,000 hours have been recorded in our system already with aspirations for 450,000 hours in the next few years and to show young people to show the world what young people can do and also to get more young people to volunteer because they don't have to get the hottest ticket in town because of course tonight we have the unbelievable performance we're about to have from uh, Craig David that we want Jewish young volunteers to be rewarded because they're the future of our community we want to get the hook and the habit of being the leaders of tomorrow today in fact yeah when you say all these hours have been recorded what does that actually mean so evolve is a is a unique digital platform so it's, it's like a passport for young people from the age of 11 all the way up to 25 every time they volunteer in a different war we've glued it all together with the beauty of digital technology so wherever a young person volunteers for a charity a synagogue their school whichever all they do it records it so it's the collective impact of all jewish young people in our schools and youth groups volunteering is recorded in one central platform so we can actually see the impact that young people are making and tonight we start evolve starts at 11 but tonight we launch for the first time ever the chief rabbi's kindness award which is the first ever primary school volunteering award so now from the age of eight they'll be able to volunteer as well from a young age 
So for all for young, any young people that might be listening or, or, or adults that have, um, that have children or grandchildren, how do they encourage young people to, to, to start volunteering? And what sort of things, if they're thinking about it, should they start off by doing? I think the most important thing about volunteering is to first of all think about what is it in the world, in society or locally in your community you'd like to help with. So much better to volunteer with a cause you care about or to make a change in society that you want to see make difference. So if you, if you want to help the elderly, you want to help the disabled, you want to help with recycling and climate change, first of all, what are you passionate about? And then find a group of friends to do it with as well because grouping, group volunteering is great. Do it with your family as well. And then, and then get the habit. And then there are, there are hundreds of charities in desperate need for volunteers. But they also want you to be excited because they want you to be the future of their charity as well. So I think the ultimate thing is to find the cause you care about first and then to uh, go and try and support that charity. And you think that that could be something that they would then take through with them to the rest of their lives? The I Will campaign, which one of the Evolve sponsors and Jerry's supporters, believes in the double benefit principle, that as much as you get from other people, get beneficiaries get from helping by volunteering, a young person gets loads of skills as well. They get confidence, they get teamwork skills, they get event planning. So imagine someone is organising a tea for, in Jewish care. They've got to do the budgeting, they've got to do event planning, they've got to do the table decoration, etc. If they're organising fundraising, all the skills you do, all the transferable soft skills employers want today, you can get so many of those who are volunteering plus get a national achievement award like the DOV or NCS and also get open college network accreditation so you can actually get real qualifications in event planning in event money management etc so it's just as much about what you can get out of volunteering as well to support your own future it's a give and get give scenario that's wonderful so it's good for the CV and good for the soul and on that basis Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis volunteering is good for the CV but I was wondering how volunteering is good for the soul as well Volunteering is central to our Jewish psyche. We believe that to give is to exist. And it's so important from a Jewish Torah perspective that we should be selfless, that we should be considerate. And that's why this event that we're at tonight is just extraordinary. What have you noticed at this event? What, what, what have you seen for the, that the children are getting out of it? I've noticed two things. First is smiles. They're really happy. Secondly, they're proud. I think there's a sense of achievement, and rightly so. Have you been surprised by the types of things that they're doing for the community in general? I don't know if you've, if you've spoken to any of them, what, the kind of work that they're volunteering. I think you can divide them into two categories, the traditional expected stuff, and then on the other hand, some really innovative stuff, and I think that's fantastic. And they're starting to do it younger and younger. I believe you're involved with the Kindness Award. What's that? Yes, yeah, so this evening I'm having the honour of launching what is being called the Chief Rabbi's Kindness Challenge. And the whole idea is to involve children who are particularly young to get into the habit of volunteering. And uh, the message to them obviously is now keep it up for the rest of your lives. What sort of things do they have to do to be involved in this project? Is it a one-to-one -one award, and then, or do they have to do something and then demonstrate it? Oh, it's quite an intricate system, whereby they achieve points, and there are tables. Parents will take a photograph of the event as evidence on the parents' phone, and then will send the photos in order to enable the points to accrue. If one achieves something over a Shabbat or a festival, then the photograph will be taken at the conclusion. And in this way, they will achieve a certain number of points in order to get a certain level, as a result of which they'll get a certain award. Wow, so like you say, so catch them early. And what sort of, presumably they're not going to be able to do some of the things that the other kids are doing. I think they were, that when you say the traditional things that the older children are doing, what sort of things did, have you come across? Well, you get some very easy straightforward stuff such as cleaning your bedroom uh, all the way through to some really creative ways of helping people who are suffering from dire poverty uh, going beyond the Jewish community volunteering in all types of capacities and a lot of it is highly inspirational and are most of these kids most of them then working within the Jewish community do they go into homes sort of we I suppose we have to be a bit careful on the safeguarding side of it it depends how old the children are Okay, obviously, for the younger children, which we're launching this evening, they will be accompanied by parents, by teachers. It's all going to be properly managed. The older children sometimes are doing things through their schools, through their youth movements, and sometimes off their own bats. And clearly, from your smile, you're very proud of them. Oh, well, that's my speech tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Okay, all the best. 
Kate Fulton speaking to just some of the attendees of Jewish Lads and Girls Brigade recognition event held in September, a night dedicated to some of the younger members of the community who give up their time to volunteer. Muzzle tov to all recipients. You're listening to the Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, this part of the programme has not necessarily been announced the team yet because the truth is we're actually not quite done with our recording for the day. The rest of the team thought we were, but I knew otherwise. Because, have a little listen to uh, this. Oh, there we go. Um, Because someone amongst us is actually celebrating a rather special birthday. And what he didn't know is that, oh yes, in Jewish views style, Tony Honickberg, this is your life. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Yes, it is actually true. We are going to look a little bit at you and make the subject you for a little moment. I know you hate talking about yourself. Oh, yes, as you know, I do. But at the same time, I I thought that you would appreciate that uh, we've got a little bit uh, lined up for you uh, where we actually want to take a moment to recognise your special birthday. So, uh, indeed, uh, Anthony Lawrence Honickberg, you were born on the 22nd, if I may say, of September 1949 to uh, to Mark and Ada Honickberg. Correct. Uh, You have uh, two brothers... Harvey and Dudley, mm-hmm. if I'm not very much to say. Your brothers are older than you, aren't they? They're both older than me. I am the youngest. You are the youngest. Uh, and, of course, what, what were you like as a kid brother? Were you mischievous, were you? Allegedly so, according to my older brother. But I can't, I'm not going to swear on radio. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know this was happening, did you? I'm so sorry. I was, I was a little bleep, 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 bleep. As a Wait, excellent. Well, that's good news. You were good news. Okay, well, apparently your, your father, along with his siblings, were evacuated. So, of course, you were, you were born into the shadow of war, for want of a better term. What was that like when you were growing up? Did your father ever talk about that? Because I know that a lot of parents used to just keep it quiet, didn't they? Yeah, you do know I knew nothing about the Second World War as I was growing up. My older brother, was he was evacuated. He was born before the Second World War in 1937, so he was evacuated out for a short period and then came back home. And my next brother up was born in 1946 and I was born in 49. So it was never spoken about. My father wasn't in any of the forces. He was an auxiliary fireman in the Second World War. Don't know why he wasn't in, maybe because of health issues or whatever. So they really had nothing to talk about during, about the Second World War, only about uh, the odd stories about my mother, the bombs coming over, and my mother and the shopping and falling down in the street or being laying down and breaking eggs and things in the shopping baskets. You know. so, and you always got on, I assume, with your brothers? Yeah, absolutely. Still do. Still, Still do. do. Would you, we, would you we ever look at yourself? Were you closer as a result of what you guys went through off the back of what your parents went through, would you say? No, I think we were just a quite close family. My parents were were quite well, certainly when they got down to me, they were quite relaxed in everything that that I did. <laughs> uh, although my two older brothers would moan about, well, we never got away with that, and he gets away with everything, you know. But whereabouts did you grow up? What area? I was in Sunbury on Thames. And when when did the move to London occur? Oh, when I was uh, after my bar mitzvah. So around about the age of 14 then? Yeah, I was just coming up to 14 and my parents, with me and my middle brother, moved to Edgewood. My older brother was already out of, because he's 13 years older than me, so I was 13, he was 26, he'd already left home. What was that move like? How did you cope with sort of moving from the likes of Sudbury on Thames to sort of nearer It was easier. The, uh, it was easier suburbs. for me than it was for my middle brother. But being a lot older, he was already out working. I was still at school, so I went from one school in Sunbury to another school in Edgware. So I was then the new kid on the block that everybody wanted to know. And I made a lot of friends, some of which I still have. Well, we're going to fast forward a little bit now, because let's look a little bit at your family life, because, of course, that you are a family man yourself with children and grandchildren. I've got children, spare children and grandchildren and spare grandchildren. And you've got your lovely partner, Helen, Helen as well. Helen, yeah. Yes, and, who's, uh, um, who's, been, who's been amazing. She has been amazing, hasn't she? Last years nearly, yes. Yeah, I mean, Helen, would you say you've been amazing? I say she's been absolutely brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Something I didn't expect. You didn't know this was happening either, not did you? I'm so sorry. I, I, I was always told not to phone him when he's broadcasting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> my voice. <laughs> so Helen, Helen, why not tell us a little bit about how you and Tony met? 
Right, well, we met 29 years ago. We were both, well, I was separated at that time, he was already divorced. And we met through an, an introduction, which was quite brave. And it was. we went on a blind date, if you like. And he took me for a meal at the Aviv restaurant. And we knew we were going to hit it oh. off because we actually ended up sharing a meal on the first date. We shared, oh. shared a meal on the first date. Sta- staring yeah. at each other's mouths and the food going um, round and round. And has he stopped nicking your food since, Helen? <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely not. He doesn't actually, he's done more than lick it. He actually cooks most of it. I'm very, very sport. He's a wonderful cook. Loves to cook. Um, Thank you. I'm not so keen on cooking, so he does most of the catering around here. But, uh, so very Mr. Honigberg is quite the domesticated yeah. creature. <laughs> Allegedly so. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> domesticated, very handy to have around. Very good at all the odd jobs: electrical, plumbing, decorating, technical advice, everything. <laughs> fantastic, uh, fantastic person to have in the house. Well, there you go. Helen, thank you very much indeed for uh, keeping the secret so well. You know, we, uh, we do appreciate that we don't encourage secrets amongst partners, but, you know, at the same time, it was, it was almost worth it just to see the look on his face, which wait, I have wait. to tell you is oh, a good, picture. One thing I've got to say, wait till I get home. <laughs> <laughs> Helen, thank you. This, see you later. Thank, thank you so much. Bye. Bye. So there you go. You're sorry about that. We, did, we didn't like to uh, spring too many surprises on you because obviously at your time of life, we never know you what the reaction be very might careful. be haven't you yes but I think that there is time for just one more surprise because uh, the truth is Tony that uh, you, you obviously mean quite a lot to quite a few people there were one or two who weren't necessarily able to be here today but they did send these messages hi Tony I know they're going to celebrate your life on the radio today <laughs> so I just wanted to wish you a really happy birthday and I hope you have a fantastic year and thank you for being a really great brother <laughs> hi dad happy 70th birthday I hope you had a great day on your birthday, enjoyed all the celebrations, and have made a bit of an indent into all that whiskey you were given. (laughs) All my love, your son and heir. Happy birthday, Grandpa. I love you with all my heart. Um, The last 10 years that I've been with you has been amazing. Love from Amy. Happy 70th birthday, Grandpa. Love you, lovely L. <laughs> there you go. Your family obviously have quite uh, quite a lot of time for you, Tony, so they wanted I, to send those messages. I, I must say, Phil, I think you've worked pretty hard. Do you know what? I have to say, ordinarily putting the Jewish views together is a breeze. This month, for some reason, proved a little more difficult than most. But all the same, the truth is, Tony, that uh, that you mean a great deal to all of us here at the Jewish Views as Thank well. And we couldn't much. possibly let your special birthday go unnoticed. So from all of us, a uh, very happy birthday indeed. And may I just add a second to that? I really am delighted and wish you very, very many happy returns and many more years. Clive, thank you very, very much. And the rabbinic thought for this month comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from the New North London Resorty Synagogue. We're in the beautiful month of October, with which since childhood I've associated with the high holidays, the beginning of the Torah cycle, and the season of autumn and the colour on the trees. Rosh Hashanah celebrates creation, we then ask forgiveness, sit in our sukkah, decorated with flowers and branches, and it all moves towards the celebration of creation when we read the first chapters of the book of Breshit on the first Shabbat of the new year. There's a wonderful teaching by Rabbi Menachem Nachum of Chernobyl, a disciple of the Baal Shem Tov, one of the first of the Hasidic teachers, about the new year, in which he notes that the Mishnah says, Ha'olam nivra. Usually one translates that as the world was created, but he says, no, the world is and is constantly being created. The divine energy, God's presence is there in all things. It doesn't depart. It is present all the time. I often feel like that when I have the privilege, perhaps particularly in my sukkah, but over all these days, of looking out at the dusk, of listening to the birds, of appreciating what is a wondrous world and feeling its magic and feeling its mystery. So over this month, I have two kinds of thoughts in my mind. One of them is perhaps negative. How can I not harm this marvellous world? I listened to Al Gore, author of Inconvenient Truths, speak about what is happening with our climate and has put into me a sense of fear and a sense of awe to do my utmost 
personally and collectively, not to harm our world. And the other thought is positive. What can I plant? What can I appreciate? What can I protect? I have always been a lover of gardens and of woodlands, and I plan to plant trees this year more than in the past, because in their shade is the beauty as if one was dwelling in God's presence itself, sheltered in the classic phrase, beneath the wings of the Shekhinah, the divine presence. So over this month of autumn, may we look through the winter and ahead to being a year of planting, of good deeds, of good thoughts, and quite literally of trees as well. Thank you very much indeed to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London, Mazorsi Synagogue, with our thought for the month. And that's all we've got time for for this episode of The Jewish Views. Thank you to all of our guests, to Michael Etherton, to Gary Senior, and of course we must also remember to thank all of Kate's guests, including Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis, and of course thank you to Esther Hoffman. And how could I possibly not thank our mystery guests in the form of Helen, Tony's better half, and all of Tony's family for keeping this uh, rather sneaky surprise and uh, doing it so well. Thank you very much indeed. And of course, we mustn't forget to thank our producer, Sue Greenberg, who has worked again tirelessly bringing this episode to you. And of course, we must thank you at home for listening. Don't forget, you can always listen to this episode or indeed any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with JW3, but from me, Phil Dave... From me, Tony Honigberg. And me, Kate Fulton. And from me, Clive Roslin. We do hope you'll join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.